Well, good morning. It's good to see you. Uh, my name is Ryan Ritchie. I am the young adult pastor at the Oviedo campus, and I'm blessed to be here with you this morning. It's good to have our church back, right? It's good to be back. I know this is like the second or third week that y'all have been back, and so I'm blessed to see that y'all are here. And for those that may still be watching online later tonight, thank you for continuing to be faithful to your church. Um, Pastor Doug is in Los Angeles this morning. Um, we had the pleasure last year at our Global Impact Conference uh, to commission two new church plants um, across America. One was in New York City, one was in L.A. The one in L.A. Um, was from a former student of Pastor Doug from his church in Missouri, and so he's there now as for the first time they are opening up their own campus in Los Angeles in the middle of a global pandemic, which is amazing, and praise God for that. And so he is there to kind of uh, see that kind of service off, and, and, and I bless him in that. If y'all would pray for him and his travel mercies this week, and just being in Los Angeles in the middle of this right now is probably not the easiest thing in the world either. So uh, y'all keep him in your prayers. Last week, Pastor Doug introduced this new sermon series, Seven, right? As we're going through the, the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And so we're going to walk through the text of the second letter together. And then I want to ask you one, I think, very vital question um, that sort of brings this home for, for us where we are today. And that, that question is this. Do you really believe that what you believe is really real? Do you really believe that what you believe is really real? Kim was 31 years old, living in the Pyongyang region of North Korea. Today, less than 2% of North Korea's population is Christian. But Kim was lucky enough to be born into a rare Christian family there. As a child in school, Kim was taught the official truth that there is no God and that people should worship the country's leaders. But growing up, she also heard that her hometown was once the Jerusalem of the East because of its great influence of Christianity. But after the Korean War, North Korea outlawed Christianity, and on Saturday nights, her family would continue, rather, the hometown legacy from before the war. As they gathered in the back of their tiny apartment, and they whispered their worship, they covered their heads as they read scripture together in order to muffle the noise. Kim's grandmother had converted to Christianity prior to the war and had kept a Chinese Bible illegally, but it was their most prized possession. Kim's mother had translated it from Chinese into Korean. Those precious pages held the family together during dark times. In their secret family worship services, they would pass their only copy of God's word around the room so everyone could read it themselves. And Kim's father would always remind them at these times that they would one day pay the price for their faith. He would often say with conviction before the family, even if I face death, I choose to follow Jesus. And every morning, again and again, he would hug his family, he would hug his daughter Kim, and he would remind them to be careful. Do you really believe that what you believe is really real? Unfortunately, this kind of story is all too common in the world today. They're stories we don't hear enough of. They're a life that we're maybe too distant from. And we're going to read about an example of the persecuted church in our text this morning from the first and second century. This is in the city of Smyrna. We're in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 8. But before we kind of get to the personal application of what the passage means for us, I think it's important for us to understand that this kind of church still exists today. These seven churches, the seven being 
the number of completion in the Bible are, are, are meant to represent the whole church, the entire church, the complete body of Christ. And they also stand as an evaluation for every church around the world today. And churches like this one in Smyrna still exist. So, so keep that in mind as, as we read today. This isn't distant. This isn't ancient. This exists today. And, and someday it, it could exist here. Okay? So I want us to read, starting in Revelation, uh, in chapter 2, verse 8, all right? We're, we're, we're moving north from Ephesus up to Smyrna. Y'all know that, right? The, 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 the letters are written in kind of a geographical way that a courier would have traveled from Patmos to Ephesus first. That was the nearest city. And then they would go clockwise around all of Asia Minor. And so if you just go north, the closest city is Smyrna. That's why we're here, okay? And so here we are in, uh, in chapter 2, and let's read together. To the angel of the church at Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, the protos and the eschatos, the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogues of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. But be faithful, even to the point of death. I will give you life as a victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let him hear this familiar admonition. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious, the one who endures, will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray together. God, as we read your scripture this morning, I pray that you would humble us to the point of understanding that we are so much like this church, that we need this admonition in our life to, to, to not be afraid, to come humbly before you, even being faithful to the point of our own persecution, Lord. God, I don't feel worthy to stand up and share this message today, and so I pray that you would fill me up, Lord, so that I can deliver the message you have for your church today. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. The message today is titled, He Shares. He Shares. And so there's three things I want us to see from the text that he shares. And number one, I think we see that he shares our suffering. He shares our suffering. It says in verse 9, it says, I know. This is Jesus talking. This is Jesus. Uh, John introduced that in chapter 1. He has all this, um, this text that describes the person of Jesus that's talking. And, and then Jesus begins to talk. And the first thing in chapter 1 in verse 19 that he says is, I am first and last. And so we see that same introduction here. I am first and last who died and came to life. I think we need to understand the purpose of the entire book of Revelation before we move forward. Uh, this is written by John. Um, it's, it's written to the church at this time, and, and it's, it describes these end times, right? This eschatology of what God is going to do, the victory that's coming. And so often we get bogged down in like, okay, what does this mean? What does that mean? This is symbolic for this and that. Is it, uh, is it a rapture? Is it no rapture? Is it post-trib, pre-trib? All these different um, you know, ideas of what the end times are going to look like. That's not why the book of Revelation was written. The book of Revelation was written to be an encouragement to the church that's suffering through this not yet period of life, that there is victory to come. That's the only reason why it's written. And here we can see a church that's persecuted, that's suffering, but the one who is speaking to them about their suffering holds the keys to death itself. 
He died and he came back to life. I would think that would mean something just a little bit more to a church that's going through a time of persecution. It says, I know. He knows their afflictions, number one. That's what he says right there in verse 9. I know their afflictions. This is Smyrna. Um, This is a populous city, maybe not so much uh, as populous as Ephesus was, but it's a seaport town, the same kind of thing. And and so uh, it's very prosperous. It's very affluent. There's a lot of things going on there. It was a hub of education. It was actually the hometown of uh, Homer. Uh, who wrote the Iliad and this famous author. This was kind of where he was from. And so you get the picture of what this town is like. But during this time, one of the things that became so popular was a thing called emperor worship, the cult of emperor worship. It kind of started in, uh, in this Asia Minor period of time, and, and Smyrna was one of the first cities to build a temple to the emperor of Siberius, all right? And they had an altar to Caesar, and once a year in the, in the Roman culture, you were required to go to the altar of Caesar to burn incense and to say the words, Caesar is Lord. There were some people that thought, well, this is really just a political thing. It's not really something that connects to me spiritually. I can do it because it's just sort of this outward thing that I do for society. It's a political gesture. It's not something that means anything great. But, but you had to say Caesar is Lord, and I don't understand how they could do that. And that somehow fly right in the opposition of what Paul says in Romans 10, right? He says, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. So, so, so if you were really a Christian and you believed these words that were circulated to you and you wanted to confess and believe, how could you ever confess that anyone other than Jesus is Lord? They wouldn't do it. And so they were persecuted as a result of it. In fact, 60 years after this letter was circulated, there was a theologian by the name of Polycarp, right? Uh, he was an early church evangelist, and he lived in the town of Smyrna, and he was burned at the stake for not confessing that Caesar was Lord. In an account of his martyrdom, he was quoted as saying, 85 years I have served Christ, and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme his name, the king who saved me? Do you really believe that what you believe is really real? He knows their afflictions. He knows their poverty. We're going to talk more about this in just a second. He knows their poverty, but this word poverty, just know this, it really means financial loss. In the middle of a prosperous, affluent town, this church was broke. They had nothing. Why is that? I can't think of another reason why, although it doesn't exactly tell us, other than social and political persecution. That's the only reason I can think that maybe they were impoverished in the middle of an affluent town. We're going to talk more about that in just a second. He knows their afflictions, their poverty. He knows their slander. It says right there in the text, it says that um, I know the slander of those who say that they're Jews and are not, but are rather synagogues of Satan. We read in Galatians uh, chapter 3, Paul says this in verse 23, Before the coming of the faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up under the faith that was to come, that would be revealed. And so the law was our guardian until Christ came that we would be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through the faith for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile nor slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, but you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. They were Jews, but they were not. See what it's saying there? It's saying, 
they identified with their race more than they identified with their God. They put something else in place of God as the highest importance and priority in their life. And as a result, they really became political deal makers. Okay, somehow in this, in this environment of emperor worship, in this cult that was created in the Roman Empire, the Jews were exempt from it. Now, how is that? The Jews worship a different God. They don't say and confess that Caesar is Lord, but somehow they were exempt from doing this. Well, because they had jockeyed for this political power in the culture of Rome. They had forfeited things that were once important to them, the place as heirs in the kingdom of God, and they were jockeying for political power. And in fact, they actually just become glorified finger pointers to identify to the Romans where the Christians are. And they would separate themselves from Christians saying, no, 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 these people aren't a part of the Jewish faith. They don't get the same exemption we do. Why don't you go get them, guys? Leave us. Why don't you go get them? They became these glorified finger pointers, teaming up with the Romans to, to out the Christians throughout the city. And I love what Jesus does here. He, he brings it down to the source and the root of all evil, right? It's not just that we have an offense to take up against this other group of people over here. He says, no, now they have become the synagogues of Satan, revealing the ultimate source of persecution. I love when Matthew 5 says, Jesus, same Jesus, he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? I think we need to realize it's because they are more like us than they are unlike us. And the only difference is this. The only difference is this. Satan. The influence of evil in their life. The thing that they place on the throne of their heart could easily be us. And I think Jesus is trying to reveal to them, I understand the slander that's coming to you, all right? But it's not enough for us to just criticize and berate and judge we have to get down to the heart of the problem, the source of the evil. We know where it is. Satan is the father of lies. He's the prince of darkness. He's the author of evil. We should love our enemy. So he knows. He knows afflictions. He knows their poverty. He knows their slander. But how? How does he know? I love this word, know. I think it means really a more of I'm acquainted with. I have a personal familiarity with, right? I have a friend who is having a baby right now. Him and his wife are having a baby right now, and they're going through a rough time. Um, the, the, the due date is here at the end of the week, and just recently they had an ultrasound because the baby was breached, and they wanted to know if the baby had kind of flipped over. You know how that goes. Um, fortunately, it did, but then in the ultrasound, it revealed that there was a hole in her diaphragm. Um, and that some of her uh, organs have been displaced, and they call that a hernia, and it, it's another genetic abnormality. And um, they're going to have to have surgery after she's born, obviously hoping that she's born successfully, and um, they're going to be in the NICU, or, or she's going to be in the NICU, this little baby, probably for four to six weeks right after birth. And, and, and I've never been through anything like that, and there's no way that I could call him up on the phone and say, Max, I love you, brother, and I understand exactly what you're going through. Because I don't. But Jesus does. He knows exactly what we're going through. Hebrews 4 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He took on the flesh. He personified righteousness. He endured persecution, and he did it perfectly. He did it perfectly. Imagine running a marathon 
and you are tired, and you are hurting, and you are cramping, and it is not fun, what's the easiest thing to do? Quit. The easiest thing to do in the face of temptation is to give in to it. The hardest thing to do is to endure it perfectly. And so if you think somehow Jesus is not acquainted with what you're going through, he is. And he's actually more acquainted with it than you are. Because he endured it perfectly. We give in. We should see the call here, all right? We should see the call in the text. There is no room for apostasy whatsoever. There is no wiggle room in Scripture for you to somehow abandon the truth or work your way around what God's Word says for your life just for your own comfort or your own safety or your own sort of prosperity in life. It says in verse 10, faithful unto death. Who does that sound like? That sounds like Jesus. And it's verses like this that reminded the early church of how peculiar it is to have honor in being like Christ in persecution. They took pride in it. They have these three words in the early church that describe people that went through persecution. Uh, you guys know the one that's called martyr, right? And martyr became this, this ultimate term that was very highly praised. It was one that, uh, that they all like some, they sought after. Uh, they longed to be martyrs. Um, they praised people that, that, that gave the ultimate degree of faith, uh, which was to give their life. There's another word called confessor. Confessor was someone who was prepared. Um, they were ready. Um, they, they confessed Christ, but maybe they didn't face the same amount of persecution in their life. Maybe they just faced some sort of uh, light physical persecution or, or some sort of financial persecution, but, but not necessarily unto death. And, and so there was this term called confessor uh, that applied to them. There was another term called defector. You can imagine, this was the one that was spurned. This was the picture of someone who caved under persecution. Now, how do you show up at a church where everyone else in the church is somehow persecuted in one way or another? Maybe this person had financial loss. Maybe this person has scars somewhere on their body from physical persecution that they took. They've been spat on. Maybe someone lost a family member who had actually been martyred for their faith. And you show up to that church and you caved. How do you show up to that church again and look those people in the eye and worship with them? That was the term defector. They put a high price on being like Christ in his persecution. They thought if Christ endured the insults, the shame, the public rebuke, if he was despised and mocked and abused, if Jesus was pierced for my transgressions and, and bruised for my iniquity, if he endured the entirety of God's wrath on humanity all the way to the cross, the grave, and beyond, then I can and I must endure what's in front of me, regardless of the cost, for his name's sake. He shares our suffering. Secondly, we see that he shares his riches. It says, but you are rich. I love that phrase. Just kind of sneaks it in there. In some of your translations, it's actually parenthetical, right? It just says, but you are rich. This term poverty, we talked about it. it it's actual real poverty. It's abject poverty. It's persecution. It's financial loss. But Jesus commends them as being spiritually rich. In fact, for this church, there's no uh, accusation at all. The, the letters uh, to the seven churches follow a familiar pattern. And I think uh, Pastor Doug talked about this last week, right? There's, there's this description of Jesus. There's usually a description of what's going well in the church, right? Then there's a description of what's not going well in the church. There's an accusation of some kind to hurl against the church. You guys aren't doing this so well, right? What was it in Ephesus? You've abandoned your first love. 
There's some sort of accusation there. And then there's an admonishment. Here's what we can do better. Here's the charge moving forward. If you have ears, let them hear. Here's what we should do. This church, though, there is no accusation. I don't know that that's because they're not doing something wrong. Maybe it's because Jesus sees the persecution and realizes, um, I need to have some compassion on what these folks are going through. I'm not really sure why. But the one thing that's true, and I love this, is that they, they, didn't, they didn't experience any approval of man in their life. But they experienced the approval of their Savior. And so I wonder, are you too busy seeking the approval of man that you miss the approval of your Savior? Because sometimes they don't line up, those two things. I love, that the, I love that the rich church in chapter 3 from Laodicea is called poor, and the poor church here in chapter 2 in Smyrna is called rich. That's this opposite gospel that I think Jesus points out all the time. In Corinthians, Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Do you see the equation of what's going on? Um, my, my kids are here. My wife is here. They're sitting in the back, and I think they're paying attention, although they're not looking at me right now. Um, and I've shared this story a couple of times now, but Nolan is in uh, kindergarten for the first time this year, and he's in the same class in kindergarten that Tucker was in last year, and the teacher has this behavior chart. Everybody starts on green. That's the color in the middle. If you do good, you go up to blue and purple. If you do bad, you go down to yellow and red. And, uh, and last year, Tucker was there, and, and Nolan got to witness those uh, times. There's a few times where Tucker maybe did something, and he got on a poor color, and, and then mom and dad feeling like we need to correct and discipline and, and teach our children. We did some things to help Tucker understand that that was not okay, and, and Nolan witnessed those things, okay? And then this year, it's Nolan's turn. He's in kindergarten, and um, in the second week of school, he comes home on the highest color, purple, which is great. I love the purple. is the highest color. It's my favorite color. Um, and so I, I, I freak out. I'm like, yes! And I, like, I pick him up, I hug him, I chase after him, I throw him in the air, I realize he's motion sick, and I forgot that, and now he's crying at me. So we take him out to go get some ice cream afterward, and with a mouth full of ice cream, he's looking at me, and he goes, that was really easy, Dad. I think I might be on purple every single day. And then the next day, he comes on one red. Like, so then it's like, it didn't work, right? And that's kind of where we are sometimes and, and, and Jesus is saying, that's not how it works. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the humble, is what we're saying. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The only true source of riches is the immeasurable, imperishable riches of Jesus' mercy and grace. And God is saying here, humble yourselves. I can't do anything with your pride. I can't do anything with what you think you have together. I can't do anything with that. I can't heal someone who isn't sick. I can't save someone who isn't lost. I can't fix someone who isn't broken. Do you realize the pattern that Jesus calls us to of confession and humble uh, and humility and, and repentance on a daily and a regular basis? Because there's nothing he can do with our pride in this life. We need to share in his riches because he shares them with us. And then we can see that he shares his future. In verse 10, it says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. This reproof, do not fear, it really calls the church to stop being afraid of what they're about to suffer, to stop being afraid. The name Smyrna, I love this, it means myrrh, bitterness, myrrh. Uh, you remember uh, gold, frankincense, and myrrh? name Smyrna means myrrh, and, and myrrh is, as we know from the, the nativity story, it's an embalming 
incense. It's what they would use to embalm someone who had died and, and, and had been kind of mummified or whatever and gone into their tomb. They would use this myrrh to, to, to be as, a, as an embalming incense. So, so the name Smyrna kind of already points out what I think Jesus is calling this church to, right? They anticipated it. They were already beginning to fear what was coming to them, but Jesus guaranteed it. Jesus says, you're about to suffer it. Do not fear. He says, look, look, the devil, the accuser, the real source of the problem, he's going to throw some of you into prison. And Jesus assures them that, that the accuser will, will try to harm them, but really Christ is going to use what the devil means for evil, and he's going to turn it into something that will reveal their faith and their loyalty and their love for him. He gives these three promises as well, and I love this. Ten days, verse 10, says ten days. What does that mean, ten days? Ten days is just another way to say it's not going to last forever. It's only temporary. He allows the suffering, but he's in, in control of the duration. It won't last forever. He says, crown of life. You will be rewarded with a crown of life. Being faithful unto death, Jesus extorts them, and he says, you will be given a crown of life. The word crown it just means a victor's crown. James 1 reminds us that uh, a man who endures trials is blessed because when he passes the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised him. I love the imagery of the word crown of life here because crown of life was this thing that in Smyrna, they had these athletic games and you would receive very similar to how the Olympics were, uh, this, this crown that, that they would put on those that won a competition in an athletic game. Um, but it was this twisted uh, crown of flowers and blooms that they would knit together and award as a crown of life to those that won the athletic games. And I love this because get the picture. Jesus will one day redeem his painfully dead crown of thorns and give us a beautiful, blooming, blossoming crown of life. Then it says, you will not be hurt by the second death. You will overcome. We know that physical death was the outcome of Adam's sin in the garden, but there's something worse than physical death in this life, and it's spiritual death. Revelation 20 calls it the lake of fire. That's another way to describe hell. In Revelation 21, we're told those who experience the second death, the cowards, the unbelievers, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the, the sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is in the second death. That's Revelation 21, 8. But in Christ, we see the complete reversal of the curse of Eden. Romans 5, it says, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Revelation 20 tells us that because of Christ, this second death has no power over us. We are overcomers. By the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. He shares our suffering. He shares his riches. He shares his future. But what, what do we share? What do we share? In Philippians chapter 3, it says in verse 10, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection, right? The second the victory over the second death, the power of his resurrection, the crown of life, that I may have that and may share 
in his sufferings. That I might share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So will you share in his sufferings? Will you share in his riches, the gift of eternal life? Will will you share in his future? Is your eternity secure? The book of Revelation is written by um, the Apostle John. And um, he is writing the letter from the Isle of Patmos because as part of being the persecuted church, he was exiled there. It was a political prison that he was sent to so that his influence would kind of be no more. I I love that he's writing this book from there because his influence obviously was so much greater. They didn't have anything to do with that, right? Um, But he's writing it. He's facing persecution. And uh, if you remember back in Matthew 20, there was a mother that approached Jesus in Matthew chapter 20, and he asked Jesus, can my two sons sit at your right hand and your left hand in the kingdom of heaven? And he says this question. He says, you don't know what you're asking me. You don't know what you're asking me. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? The the two sons were John uh, on one hand and, and James on the other hand. The cup he's about to drink is the cup of persecution and suffering. It's the cup of God's wrath that's going to be poured out on Jesus Christ. And we know that James was the first apostle to be persecuted. We know that John was being persecuted. He was the last one to die, the first and the last James and John, and what he's really saying, say, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? What he's really saying is, do you believe that what you believe is really real? Will you endure? Kim heard the warnings of her father every day as she went out to face a North Korean society where Christianity was not just under attack, it was outright illegal. Eventually, the faith of Kim's father was discovered, and police arrested him and his brother uh, one day when Kim was at school, and she never saw her father again. And now it's almost certain that her father is likely dead. Kim, her mother, her grandmother, and siblings all eventually escaped North Korea. Today, she's married. She has a child of her own and is frequently invited to speak to groups about human rights abuses in North Korea. And she says this, she says, I grew up in a land where they said there was no God. But my father told me otherwise. He loved Christ, and for that, he died. Do you really believe that what you believe is really real? See, in America today, we got to prepare that this kind of truth is headed our way. There will be people who will oppose you and persecute you. There will be people who will say you are wrong. They will call you all sorts of things. And we can anticipate economic sanctions. We can anticipate governmental restrictions. We can anticipate social backlash. Eventually, greater persecution will likely be headed our way. It's already happening to Christians all across the world, and it's coming to America. So here's the question. Are you able to drink this cup? Do you really believe that what you believe is really real? Last thing, in 2017, there was a study done by the Barna Research Group, and and the study found that only 17% of Christians who say that their faith is important to them and attend attend church regularly, 17% of Christians 
have a biblical worldview. I read some of the diagnostics. They were questions that identified with different sorts of uh, uh, philosophies around the world today, things like postmodernism, secularism, individualism. And only 17% of Christians in this study that would consider them, themselves uh, Regular attenders, they would say their faith is important to them. Only 17% of them have a biblical worldview. What do we see in that number? I think what we see is we see Christians who are folding under the pressure of religious persecution. They see what's coming and they can't handle it. They feel the pressure and the temptation to fold to societal norms that are changing and flowing every day, and instead of attaching themselves to the truth of God's word, they cave. The easiest thing to do, y'all, to avoid persecution is to abandon the truth of God's word. But through the church at Smyrna, Jesus is commending us toward a courageous faith. This is the courageous faith we just got done talking about in the Overcoming Spiritual Vertigo series that Pastor Doug took us through. God is the ultimate judge. He holds eternity in his hand, not men. And so where is your focus today? Is your focus on things of eternity or is it on the things of man that don't matter? The early church found a peculiar honor in being like Christ in his persecution, being faithful even unto death. And I wonder today if that's because they feared God more than they fear man. So who's in control? Where, where is your fear? What are you fearing right now? Because you can't fear both. You can't serve both. Do you really believe that what you believe is really real in the face of persecution that is to come? Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gift and the crown of life, and the future that you have secured through the blood of Jesus Christ. And I want to pray right now, Lord, that if there is someone in this room that hasn't fully given themselves up to that future, Lord, that you would convict them of that right now. That they'd be able to correctly identify the sin in their life, understand the only way to overcome it, and confess that Jesus is Lord, nothing else. Lord, I also want to pray for believers in this room that are feeling the weight of persecution in the world today, that are feeling the challenge of overcoming the changes of this world, that are feeling the pressure to conform. Lord, would you strengthen my brother and my sister this morning? that we could attach ourselves to the source of truth, your word, and nothing else. Or give us a great conviction for truth today. Convict us of areas of our life where we need to re-examine what our worldview is and press on towards you. Lord, that, that believers in this room watching online would, would hear the challenge this morning and would desire to endure. Only through the power of the grace that's in us, Lord. And it's that grace that we're so thankful for, so grateful for. Bandy one life. Grace of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.